first reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 16 to 24, which thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. And we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering which we administer in order to honour the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift, for we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. In addition, we are sending with them our brother, who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous, and now even more so because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brothers, they are representatives of the churches and an honor to Christ. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you, so that the churches can see it. The next reading is the book of Titus, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now, at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. This is God's word. Good morning, everyone. It would be really helpful if you could um, keep your Bibles open at Titus chapter 1, that second reading, and let's pray together as we come to look at God's word. Father, thank you that you continue to speak to us today in these words in your Bible. And we pray that you would help us to have hearts that love what you say and that you'd help us to grow in the knowledge of you and that that might lead us to live godly lives in the hope of eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in case you haven't noticed, the UK has become very, very health conscious. Um, one study from last year that I was reading place us sixth in the world as the most health-conscious nation. Australia topped the list, but apparently we're sixth in the world. What they did was they they looked at um, Google searches and saw which countries in the world were Googling for things that they deemed to be healthy, so different categories, you know, diet, who's searching for weight loss and diet regimes, who's searching for exercise, gyms and cycling and running, who's um, even searching for things to do with mental health, like rest and meditation. And as they sort of added these all up and looked at all the different countries in the world, the UK came out sixth because we're a very, very health-conscious nation. But but as you look at um, sort of concerns for our physical health and our our mental health, one noticeable absence is a concern for spiritual health. So I guess one crude measure to judge people's concern for spiritual health might be church attendance. And by that metric... Spiritually speaking, the UK is not just a little bit overweight or in need of booking a couple of extra gym sessions. No, we're lying on a hospital bed and the doctor's wondering if we're going to make it. 
So here's a, one example from a, a news article earlier in the year. Hopefully it will come up um, on the screen. Religious infection rate reveals dying churches. So, so they use this sort of R number that we got familiar with during COVID to kind of track how different churches are doing. And across the board, across basically all denominations, it doesn't look good. The R number is less than one. Churches are declining. And within probably the next few decades, it thinks that most denominations are going to die out. There are a few exceptions. Church, denominations are just about keeping on going. But across the board, the picture doesn't look good. There seems not to be a great interest in spiritual health in the UK. And whether you're here and call yourself a Christian or not, surely a lack of concern about spiritual health must be something that we should care about. And as we start a new series looking at this book of Titus, the main theme, the main idea in the book really is about spiritual health. Five times in these three short chapters, Paul talk about a church being spiritually healthy. You get healthy doctrine, healthy faith, healthy love, healthy endurance, healthy speech. Again and again, healthy, healthy, healthy. That's the word that gets used. It gets translated sound in our, in our Bibles, but it's the same word, healthy. Paul wants the church to be spiritually healthy in every way, not just what we believe, but in how we live. Paul wants the church to be spiritually healthy. And so as we look through the book, we'll see chapter one, his concern is to see spiritual health lived out in the church community. In chapter two, spiritual health lived out in the family and workplace. In chapter three, spiritual health lived out in the society where we live. Paul wants us to be a church that is spiritually healthy. Now, a little background on the letter. Paul had traveled to the island of Crete. We're not quite sure when, probably in the early 60s AD, after the book of Acts is finished. Not just because he wanted a holiday, like many will be going to Crete at the moment, but in order to plant new churches on the island. And for whatever reason, after establishing new churches in all the towns in Crete, Paul has left and he's had to go. And like many, many new, newly planted churches, things still feel a bit weak, still feel a bit sickly. Paul has left Titus behind then in Crete with the job of finishing what he started. So if you look down at verse 5, you get an idea of why Titus is there in Crete. Paul writes, the reason I left you, Titus, in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished. So Paul's gone to Crete, he's started these new churches, and they're, they're unfinished, they're, they're not healthy yet. And Paul has left Titus there to bring them to health. Now Titus was a good man for the job. We, we had that reading earlier in 2 Corinthians to give us a little bit of a flavor of some of the things that Titus has been up to. We know from the rest of the Bible, he's a Greek speaker. We can see that he probably became, in verse 4, a Christian under the, the preaching of Paul. Paul calls him his true son, spiritually speaking. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and 8, we see that Titus has experience at helping sickly churches in the past. So the church in Corinth was in a bit of a mess, and Paul had left Titus there to help them out. And he was enthusiastic, a fellow worker, and he helped bring that church back to some measure of spiritual health. So Titus was a good man for the job. Paul has left him here to bring the churches in Crete to spiritual health. Now, when we step back and look at the picture of what a spiritually healthy church is like, it's actually rather beautiful, if, if you're a Christian or not. Some of the frustrations that you often hear leveled about churches, when you step back and look what Paul is asking Titus to do in Crete, it's actually quite beautiful. In this spiritually healthy church, you find that, that what people believe matches how they live. They live out their faith, and it's consistent. You find leaders who are above reproach. There's no scandals going on. 
you find that the behavior of Christians in their homes and in their workplaces is just so compelling that even non-Christians kind of want to come in and find out about who Jesus is. The people in the church, they're not quarreling or arguing, they're, they're helping one another, and, and especially those in need. We get this little phrase that comes up again and again, the church is devoted to doing what is good. The church is devoted to doing what's good. Now, that's a beautiful picture of what a church could become if it's spiritually healthy. Now, here at Christchurch Mayfair, I guess we're no longer in the, in the new church plant stage, being established for a good couple of decades now. But I guess we can think of this letter of Titus as a bit more of a spiritual health checkup. As we look through the, the book and, and see, what does it look like for us to be healthy as a church? And this morning, we're going to look at these first four verses of Titus. And we're really thinking big picture. We're thinking big principles of what it means for a church to be healthy. And then as the weeks go on, we'll look through the details. And these four verses, they're basically Paul's business card. It's just his job title and a few quick sentences, a few quick phrases that tell us what he's about. And so what he's passing on to Titus to say, the churches in Crete need to be about this as well. There should be an outline on, on your sheets. We're going to work through it like this. A healthy church will be, one, making progress in faith and godliness. Two, for the promise of eternal life. Three, by the preaching of the Savior's word. So we're going to work through those three this morning as we think about spiritual health. So firstly, number one, a healthy church will be making progress in faith and godliness. Let's have a look at verse one again. Paul writes, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So Paul's mission as an apostle and a servant of God, which he's now delegating to Titus, comes in two parts. He talks about furthering, progressing, one, the faith of God's elect, and two, their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Now, I think the first one's quite straightforward, that the faith of God's elect, I think he's talking about people coming to faith in Jesus. There's a similar phrase he uses in 2 Timothy as well, where it seems to be the case. He's talking about people coming to faith in Jesus. And we've seen that that is the driving passion of his life as he journeys around the world throughout the book of Acts, telling people about Jesus so that they might come to faith in him. And Crete was just one example of that. We've seen he's established churches there already. So he wants people to come to faith in Jesus. But I think more significantly, the second part, having come to faith in Jesus, Paul then wants them to make progress. He wants them to grow in their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And this is sort of the, I guess, the, the, the central thing to take away, that the knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. The knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. Now, now godliness is a word that you might hear quite often if you spend time around churches, but it's quite hard to actually define, to get, our, kind of get a grasp of. Older translations would use the word piety, but that's not so good because it has such negative connotations today. You know, oh, so-and-so, that's such a pious person. Piety is not a, a positive word. Where Paul's using godliness, it's a positive word. The best definition that I came across this week, so thinking about what godliness is, is godliness is all of our life committed to God in practice. All of our lives committed to God in practice. That's what godliness is. All of our life committed to God in practice. In some ways, it's easier to see than it is to define. So um, the, the church that I grew up going to, in some ways, it had more of a sort of 
a normal age range of people who come on like lots of central London churches. So there's sort of a lot of much older Christians who've been Christians for years and years. Uh, I remember um, one of them, his name was um, Dave, and he was in his 80s. He'd been a follower of Jesus for like 60 years, following Jesus, trusting him. And he wasn't perfect by any means. But, but when you look at his life, there's just this all-round commitment to God in every area that's just there and it's just evident. You know, he'll be there at church every week, joyfully singing and taking part in the, the church service. But then out in, out in the week, he'll spend his time caring for other people and making sure that others in the church are okay. And then he's come to prayer meeting and he's there praying that his friends and family would become Christians. He's inviting his neighbors along to, to carol services. He's quick to apologize when he messes up. He's quick to point you to Jesus. He always has an encouraging word to say, kind of just every area of life. You look at him and go, gosh, you're, wow. When you're 16, you look and think, oh, how, how do you be like that? How, how do you have this all-round commitment to Jesus in every area of life? It's quite beautiful. And if you know Christians who are much, much older, you, you might think, yeah, that's what I want to be like when I'm older. Because you're just so aware of your own shortcomings. You think, how can you have an all-round commitment in every area of life? Not perfect, but godly. That's what Paul wants the church to become. Not just to come to faith, but to grow in godliness. And in verse 1, he tells us how that's going to happen. He says it's the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. In other words, there's an unbreakable link between what goes in and what comes out, what goes in and what comes out. I remember that one of the, uh, the more exciting things about moving to, to secondary school was having cooked school lunches for the first time. Now, this was back in the day when you would queue up for your, your cooked school lunch, and it was just a teenage boy's dream. You, you go to the fridge, and there's a, a fizzy drink on the side, which you grab, and then you look at what's on offer, and it's like chips every day with sausages every day, and there's turkey Twizzlers, if you can remember those, every day, and just chocolate cake every day. It's kind of, that's there, and you have it every day, until Jamie Oliver came along back in 2005. I remember it. In fact, I was reading an interview with him the other day, and he says that he still gets hurled abuse by people of my generation for ruining their childhood because of what they did, what he did. But he, he came along and he said, this isn't okay. We can't have this for, for lunch every day at schools. And starts this major health campaign and out go the fizzy drinks, out go the sausages, chips only once a week, chocolate cake once a week, no more turkey Twizzlers. It's all gone and replaced with only healthy food, vegetables and, and fruit and water and things that are really good for you. And objectively, you know, it's a really, really, really good thing. Because an individual or, or a nation of children who grow up having turkey twizzlers and chocolate cake every day, they're just never going to be healthy. You have to have the right stuff going in if you want to be healthy. We all know that. And Paul's saying that there's the same principle at work in our spiritual health. There's an unbreakable link between what goes in and what comes out. The knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. If we want to be spiritually healthy, progressing in godliness, then we need to have a diet that is rich in God's truth. More and more truth about who God is, what he's like, how he's acted for us, the promises that he's made. If we want to grow in godliness, we just have to be getting as much of God's truth into our diet as we can. That's why when you look at it, a Christian in their 80s who's been following Jesus for 60 years, who's had a steady diet of healthy teaching, healthy truth. They're, they've become really godly people. If we want to be like that, we need to get the truth into us. 
Now, the, the word for truth, it's not just sort of intellectual knowledge, but it's actually knowledge that goes deep down into us. That there's an intensity to it. It's not just knowing stuff in our heads, but it's knowing it and believing it in such a way it works out in our lives. A spiritually healthy church will make sure that this diet is readily available so that all of us can feast on it. So Paul's, Paul's concern in verse 1 is to see spiritually healthy churches not just bringing people to faith in Jesus, but people growing in godliness, having God's truth readily available to feast on. And that truth will lead us to grow in godliness as we believe it and take it into our hearts. A spiritually healthy church wants to make progress in people coming to faith and growing in faith. I guess at this time of the summer, plenty of people are moving into London and looking for new churches. We get it particularly in the evening service where there's loads of new students and graduates who are just coming in. And often people use this phrase, you know, church shopping. They're looking around for different sorts of churches. And, and there are loads of great churches in London, but we always want people to go to a church where they can be spiritually healthy, spiritually healthy. And Paul would say, pick one that's making progress, not only in bringing people to faith, but one where people will grow in their faith, that like God's truth keeps on coming in so that people can grow in godliness. You know, you can caricature, you know, there could be a church that's so outward focused, always has new initiatives to bring people to know Jesus, always has new ideas about how to reach out into the community, but never teaches those who are there. So you can stay there for years and years and just never grow as a Christian. That's not healthy. Similarly, a church is inwardly focused all the time and always thinking about teaching, but never reaching out. That's not healthy either. Paul wants both reaching out so that people might come to faith and also the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. A church that's spiritually healthy will be making progress in both. And again and again throughout this letter, we'll see Paul has both these things in his head, people becoming Christians and people growing in their faith and growing in their godliness. So that's the first thing. A spiritually healthy church will be making progress in faith and godliness. Let's then move on to, to verse 2. And the second thing, it's for the promise of eternal life. A spiritually healthy church, the, the engine empowering this will be the hope of eternal life. Let's read verse 2 again. Paul writes, it's in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. The thing that motivates, empowers Paul to evangelize and build up people that he's passing on to Titus in Crete now is the promise of eternal life. That's the hope that drives Paul to prioritize spiritual health. Now, it's important to remember that in the Bible, eternal life is not just about a quantity of life. It's not just life that goes on and on forever. It's also a quality of life. Because who wants to live forever if it's not very good? Eternal life is the life of God himself in his presence, enjoying his blessing, life to the full. That's why the Bible uses so many pictures to kind of give us a taste for how wonderful it's going to be. Eternal life is a feast of unending satisfaction, a wedding of unending joy, a garden of unending beauty, a city of unending safety, a palace of unending splendor, a temple of unending intimacy with God. Eternal life is not just quantity, but quality. And that's the hope that Christians have who trust in Jesus. And of course, what we hope for, it just totally changes what we prioritize now. So I don't know if you, you noticed this interesting pattern just as we were emerging from, from lockdown. Uh, you start to find that the airports are, were opening up and people hadn't been overseas for 18 months or so. And so we're desperately hoping for overseas holiday or to go and see family. 
And so, so friends who'd emerged from lockdown, you started to see them again and meet up again. Suddenly, you find they don't want to talk to you. They're sitting at home. They, they just want to chat on Zoom. And you think, well, what's going on? Well, it's not because they'd got COVID. It's because they want to go on holiday. And they are desperate not to get sick, not to get that dreaded positive test before the flight happens. That hope changed their priorities in the present. It controlled the things they cared about. It controlled their health that they wanted to prioritize. And for a Christian, the hope of eternal life leads us to prioritize spiritual health. Paul wants his own and the spiritual health of the churches at Crete to be growing because of the hope of eternal life. Now, the thing that stands out, I think, in verse 2 about this eternal life is that it's a guaranteed, a guaranteed promise. Because when the Bible uses hope, it uses hope in a stronger sense than how we often use it. So you might be hoping this afternoon that the Lionesses are going to beat Germany in the European Championships final. You might be hoping that next week your flight isn't delayed when you get to the airport. And you might be hoping that your young child might sleep through the night. But all of them are nice things to hope for, but none of them are guaranteed. That actually might be quite unlikely. Who knows? When it comes to eternal life, though, God is guaranteed it. That's what it says in verse 2. You see God's character. He is described as the God who does not lie. That is, it's in God's character to always follow through on his word. When he makes a promise, he does not lie. It is guaranteed. I don't know if you've ever reflected on how much of the Bible is designed to teach us this simple truth that God doesn't lie. He always keeps his promises. It's so simple that a child can understand it. So many stories again and again in the Bible, God makes promises and he keeps them. He makes them, he keeps them. So, you know, Noah, there's going to be a big flood and you need to build a boat and I'll keep you safe. And he builds a boat and the flood comes and God keeps him safe. Abraham and Sarah, you're too old to have children, but I'm going to give you a child. And they wait and wait and trust and the child comes. Again and again and again, all the way through the Bible, story after story, God makes promises and he keeps them. Thousands of years of example after example written down for us with not a single counterexample to teach us the, the simple truth that God always keeps his promises. God is not a, a dodgy secondhand car salesman who, whose promises about how good your new car is is not worth the paper it's written on. He's not a, a slippery politician whose promises always seem to come with a, a loophole or a get out clause. He, he's not even a well intentioned parent whose promises mean well, but just sometimes we don't have the power to follow through on them. God is not like that. He does not lie. His promises always come true. So when he says there is this eternal life, quantity and quality that is just unbelievably great, he doesn't lie. That will come true. But even more than that, in verse 2, you also get the sense that this is part of something way bigger than we usually imagine. That is, God inviting people to spend this eternal life enjoying his presence. It's not just a small, incidental part of his plan for the world. It's not just a, a bit of quick thinking when Adam and Eve messed up in the Garden of Eden and, oh, well, let's make up a new plan. No, verse 2, this was promised before the beginning of time. This eternal life has been God's plan all along. The very thing that God has been working towards is to bring people in Jesus Christ with him to eternal life. And so there is no way that the God who does not lie would ever let his most important central plan for the universe fall to nothing. His promises will always come true. 
And so this promise of eternal life is absolutely guaranteed. Now, if eternal life is so wonderful, and if it's absolutely guaranteed, then it shows how crazy it is to live for any other hope that pushes other sorts of health to the number one priority. So, so I guess you, you may hope to live a long life, and so spend your life prioritizing bodily health. You may hope to live a comfortable life, and so you spend your whole life prioritizing having a healthy bank balance to pay for it. You might hope to, to have a successful life, and so if you're working in an office, you might prioritize having healthy career prospects, or if you want to be an athlete, you might prioritize having a healthy training schedule. You could hope for a happy life and prioritize having a healthy social calendar. Or if you hope for a balanced life that sort of gets a bit of all of those things, you might prioritize having a healthy diary that somehow manages to sort of balance out all those things. But what's mad is that even by prioritizing health in those areas, we can never guarantee the sort of life we, we, we long for, because so much is out of our control. All those other hopes can come crashing down to nothing. And yet, in the gospel, God holds out a hope of eternal life that is absolutely guaranteed, 100%. Quantity and quality of life that is unrivaled, and it's guaranteed and Paul is saying, if we're certain of that promise of eternal life, then that will drive us to take our spiritual health seriously. What could be more important than making sure we have faith in Jesus Christ and we're growing in our commitment to him in our lives day by day? If we long for eternal life, then that is the natural, obvious thing to prioritize, our spiritual health. The engine driving Paul's concern for spiritual health is this hope of eternal life that God has guaranteed so that's the second point, the, the hope of eternal life. But now finally, uh, thirdly, point number three. This comes about by the preaching of the Savior's word, by the preaching of the Savior's word. So if you look at verse three then, Paul writes, and this eternal life, this promise, which now at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. The means that this hope of eternal life is made known, made public to the world, is by preaching. Now, now I know you trust the preacher to say that, but that is what it says in verse 3, isn't it? It's been brought to light through the preaching entrusted to Paul. The way that God has decided to make this eternal life, this hope known, is through preaching. Now, now, the word here for, for preach or, or proclaim, it, it tends to be used technically in the New Testament. So in the classical world, it's uh, the word that's used for the king's herald, the king's herald. That's one who's been officially appointed to publicly represent the king, speaking on his behalf. I guess the closest thing you'd think of today is uh, an ambassador of some sort. So, you know, the, the current UK ambassador to, to Russia, Deborah Bronitz. I think she's still in Moscow. That's not an easy job. But she has to speak on behalf of Her Majesty's government. She doesn't just get to make up what she says. She has to speak on behalf of the government. So she doesn't get to just decide, well, I don't know, to, today, um, Mr. Putin, I know you keep hearing that the, the UK wants to stop what you're doing in Ukraine, but I've got a different idea. I've got a different message. I, I've thought about something else. And so actually, just go for it. If that's what you want, just go for it. She doesn't get to say that. She'd get sacked because she's been trusted, commanded to speak on behalf of Her Majesty's government. She can't just say what she wants. And the ambassador is the officially appointed public representative. That's how the message is made known, revealed. And you get something of that idea in verse 3, as Paul explains what his role is. 
the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. Paul has been entrusted with preaching this gospel. I don't think it's a, it's a coincidence that, again, twice at the end of verse 3 and then, then the end of verse 4, God and Jesus are both called our Savior. God is called our Savior, Christ Jesus our Savior, because the message that Paul is preaching is a message of salvation. God has chosen to reveal this message of salvation, of rescue to the world through preaching. And you might ask, oh, okay, why, why has God decided to do it that way? And I guess there are, there are answers to that question that you can get from the rest of the Bible. But in one sense, what does it matter? If, if God is giving us salvation, rescue, what does it matter how it's packaged? You know, so if you're, if you're lying sick on a hospital bed, you're, you're desperately ill and no one knows how, how to cure you. And then the doctor comes running in and says, I've got the cure. I've, I found a way to rescue you. And here it is, have a pill. And you go, well, I don't want a pill. I'd rather you give it to me as a medicine that I can just drink. What, what does it matter? It doesn't matter how it comes to you. What matters is that you get the rescue. You get the rescue. And so here, verse 3, doesn't, you know, this is how God's decided. He's the saviour. He's given us this extraordinary rescue in Jesus Christ. And now he's saying it's going to go out by preaching. If we want the hope of eternal life, God's salvation plan through Jesus, if we want to be brought to spiritual health through that, then preaching takes central place in the life of the church. It's not the only thing that's important. There are loads of things that are important at church, but preaching here is so significant because that's how God our Savior and Christ Jesus our Savior has decided that this message would be brought to light through preaching. That's why a good portion of our Sunday service is taken up by preaching, why the church cares about training up people to preach. God has chosen to make known his message of salvation to the world, that we might have the hope of eternal life and keep growing in our faith through preaching. So then, as we come to a conclusion, a healthy church will be making progress in faith and godliness for the promise of eternal life by the preaching of the Saviour's word. Progress, a promise of eternal life and preaching. Now, I guess if you've been around at church for a, for a while, I don't think anything I've said would have been radically new. I, I hope you see all of those things working out. Of course, we can always do them better. But I guess my, my big prayer is as we head off into the summer and lots of us spend time away on holiday. We have a chance to reflect on our life and what we want to do in the year to come. I guess the big thing Titus would say, and the letter of Titus would say to us, is recommit ourselves to prioritizing our spiritual health. Recommit to prioritizing spiritual health, to take that seriously, to be growing in godliness as we look to the hope of eternal life. And just most fundamentally, we do that as we gather at church and we hear the preaching of God's word that we might grow in godliness. So let's pray that we might do that as a church. Father God, thank you so much that you have made this hope of eternal life available to us in Jesus. Thank you for a quality and a quantity that is beyond our wildest dreams of life with you forever. Please would you help us, drive us to prioritize our spiritual health in the year to come. Help us to listen to your word preached. Help us to take it to heart and grow as that truth goes deeper and deeper inside us. Please might we be the people in a decade, in two decades, three decades time who are growing in godliness, committed to you in every area of life in practice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.